0: This is an Odyssey Original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm
1: Charles Feldman. Another mass shooting rocks the country. This time it's at a subway station in Brooklyn, New York, where ten people were shot and six others hurt when a man who was apparently wearing a construction vest and gas mask opened fire on a packed subway train. He escaped and the search is now on. We go in-depth into the subway shooting in New York City. We will also talk to a member of the Ukraine parliament about the war and her hopes for victory and an end to all of the fighting. And two American Army veterans are heading to Ukraine to film and document humanitarian relief efforts. We talk to them about how they
0: plan to go into areas where fighting is the heaviest. COVID cases creeping up again. One big city on the East Coast is going to require indoor masks again. We'll look into whether L.A. should consider doing the same. Warner Brothers giving in to a Chinese request to cut out a part of the newest Harry Potter movie over a reference to a same-sex romance. And new study finds your personality may impact your brain health as you age. Oh, i got to be careful about that then. We
1: start with the... You have an award-winning personality. (laughs) Everyone (laughs) says so. Yeah, right. We start with the Brooklyn subway shooting. Samantha Liebman is a reporter for Station 1010 Winds in New York. She was there on scene this morning after it all started. Samantha, this is being treated by law enforcement as what?
2: Well, they're not saying that it's terror-related right now, but they're not ruling it out either. Um, They do say that they believe one person was involved and is responsible for all of this. As you mentioned earlier in your headlines, uh, it's one man they describe as wearing a green construction vest and gray hoodie. He put on a gas mask in the middle of a busy train uh, heading towards Manhattan. Imagine being a commuter on that train. All of a sudden, he throws a can of gas out into the train and then starts firing. And we have video, cell phone video shot, that shows people pouring out of the train onto the platform and the smoke just billowing out of the train and several people hobbling who had been shot.
0: A couple of questions that they had earlier, which were, were the cameras working? We figured out uh, the cameras were not, but they at least have some cell phone pictures and they're asking for more, right? And then another one, why weren't all the trains... Stopped right away because there was some thought that maybe he had kept on going on one of the trains, or do we now think that he left that particular station?
2: Um, they believe that they actually don't know how he exited the train, whether he went on the train or exited at that station. Another train pulls in at the same time, is my understanding, and the MTA workers, that's the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Uh, got all of the evacuees onto that train to get them away from the station to the next station. So um, basically evacuating the station. So in in that chaos, um, it's not clear where the shooter went.
1: What do we know, Samantha, about the condition of those shot, injured?
2: So what we know is that 10 people have been shot. Five of them are critical, but none life-threatening. Those five critical are also stable, taken to area hospitals. We're now hearing a total, including those 10 shot, 29 people injured from smoke inhalation, shrapnel, panic. Um, so not all physical injuries. Um, so that's what we're hearing right now. But no no life-threatening injuries, thankfully.
0: And any commonality as to the the racial or the ethnic makeup of the victims as far as we know?
2: We don't know. One reporter did ask whether there was a, you know, whether he was targeting certain groups. Um, But that's unclear. As as you know, hate crimes are on the rise and are way up in New York City. But they still don't know the motive, of course. But uh, they range in age, I believe, from 17 to 50 is what I'm hearing at the last count.
1: I I know uh, that station a little bit from my time living in New York City and before the pandemic, uh, it could be pretty crowded, as could that subway train during rush hour. How crowded was it at that hour, considering that I know the traffic has been down since the pandemic started on mass transit there?
2: It has been down. It's about half of what it was pre pandemic. They were trying to get people back in. It looked like quite a few people on that uh train car that came off um and i there was also video from other cars on that train that didn't look as crowded but uh those those videos captured the sound of the gunshots, several gunshots um I just want to add but uh it it the trains are still pretty busy. Uh, despite ridership being down. so And it's 8.30, so you can imagine there there are a good amount of people on the train.
0: Samantha Liebman, 1010 wins in New York City.
1: Right now, though, Vladimir Putin says the war in Ukraine will continue until Russia's goals are met. Now, we talked to many regular people in Ukraine about their experiences during the war and how their lives have been impacted. Now, we're going to talk to a lawmaker. Kira Rudik is a member of Ukraine's parliament and even has ties, by the way, to the Bay Area. She's the former chief operating officer of Ring and attended leadership training at Stanford. Kerry is in Kiev now, and thank you for taking the time uh, to join us uh, in these very troubling times for you and your country. Can you give us a, a sort of a, an update on, on what is happening as far as you know in Ukraine?
3: So we are just exhaling uh, what happened in Kiev. Uh, basically for the last couple of days uh, there has not been any significant shelling here. We went to the outskirts of uh, the city many times and we have seen the atrocities of uh, what uh, Russians uh, have done to the people, what have been done to the cities. Uh, after that, we as a government informed um, informed people from the eastern regions where the Russian army is heading right now to evacuate. Once people started evacuating, there was another hit of the missile to the Kramatorsk train station where like at least 20 kids and uh, elderly were killed. So right now we are at the point... Uh, We are we expecting today or tomorrow uh, this big battle for Donbass to happen. And uh, it will be, um, you know, Lord of the Rings level battle, like everybody against everybody.
1: Let me let me ask you this, though, Uh, as I'm sure, you know, the Austrian chancellor uh, met yesterday, the other day with uh, Vladimir Putin and did not come away from that meeting. And I think this is an understatement at, at all optimistic uh, and I think the impression the Austrian Chancellor got was that Putin uh, is determined to continue this war to uh, take over uh, as best he can the southern portion of your country and then perhaps you know I don't know points west what do you make of that meeting do you think that it was even a productive, call for the Austrian Chancellor to try to meet with Mr. Putin.
3: Look, we we never had illusions that you can come to agreement with Putin. We were at war with him for like last eight years. We know all the tips and tricks on the book. And that's why when uh, uh, even during the first days of war, there were like hopes that there could be peaceful negotiations. We were saying, yeah, well, there could be discussions, but there could not be a settlement. And we know right now that during the so-called peaceful negotiations that were happening between our president and uh, team and Russians, uh, in the meantime, people were tortured and killed in Bucha and other places of Ukraine. So uh, I don't think that Putin is determined to to make peace. He was very blunt that he is taking uh, Donetsk-Luhansk region that he's taking south of Ukraine, that then he will go to Poland and Baltic countries. And this is what his plan, this is what he's going to do. And that's why all these illusions that people are having and the world leaders that are trying to talk to him, they are basically fulfilling their internal political uh, goals, uh, not actually trying to help Ukraine.
1: If you are correct that his ambitions are to take that war ever more westward into Poland and into uh, other countries west of of your country, if that is all correct, are you not then deeply disappointed in the fact that the U.S. and the U.S. uh, Western allies are still refusing to send offensive weapons like jets to your country? that uh the europeans continue to import russian oil and gas in effect financing the war against your country that must i would think make you and your blood boil
3: i am disappointed and concerned i am um like extremely angry at that but so the issue that we see is this war essentially making everybody to give up their illusions and I'm just waiting until it happens to to the leaders of the democratic countries unfortunately we have to pay for this time for them to give up on those illusions with our lives but it will be um, imminent same as uh, understanding that the world will never be the same as before the war. Like right now, when I'm talking to many uh, leaders of the countries, they still hope that there is a way uh, through peaceful negotiation, through some agreements uh, to return the world to the February 23. And it's impossible because what the world is uh, has already felt what this war have, has uncovered is uh, so many systematic problems that we were uh, we were not admitting. Like I can give you a couple of examples. The, the um, United Nations and other international organizations that have actually no use, that are useless and pointless and who failed on their missions. Then uh, the questions about NATO, as a security organization and how effective it is. International tribunals that are taking eight to 10 years to go through any international crime, like how good are they? And the necessity of reconsidering of how all of these uh, alliances work and how should they work so they would be actually effective. Uh, The nuclear question, about are we moving away from every single country having a nuclear weapon, a nuclear program, or right now are we moving towards that every country would want to have the nuclear program? So there are many, many, many critical questions that right now are surfaced.
0: Given what you just mentioned there, your level of, of hope, or I guess, realistically, what do you think in terms of the Russians actually being held to account For these atrocities we've seen the evidence of them i saw you give an interview the other day saying look i want the first and last names of of these russian soldiers accused of of raping some of the women in these towns their mothers didn't raise them to do this and they need to know what happened
3: so if you're asking me would the international tribunal um help i think the best that we can hope for there is to have putin and some of his generals Uh, at this international tribunal, at the Nuremberg process or something. And I know that right now it sounds uh, like uh, almost impossible, but we know that for Milosevic it was also impossible, and as well as for Goebbels after the Second World War, but it happened. As for the soldiers, whose names and last names we already know, that would be on our security services. This here I do not expect that the international tribunal would would work. Look, like let's remember the MH seventeen story. It happened in 2014, 2014. And like everybody knows who fired those missiles, who gave an order, how it happened. And still nobody is convicted. Still there are hearings, and it's already been like what, eight years. So I do not believe in this international um, international justice, but I, what I do believe is in uh, ours um, in our special services, and who whose goal would be to bring up those specific soldiers to justice, as we see it. As a
1: member of the Ukrainian government, uh, I would fully expect you to. Uh, pronounce for the world stage your conviction that Ukraine will, in the end, win this battle against Russia. That said, uh, you are up against uh, an enormous army, uh, perhaps incompetent in many ways, but an enormous army, a determined leader, authoritarian leader in in Russia— do you sincerely believe that you can be, your country can be victorious in this?
3: You know, every single day of 48 days of this war was expected uh, by the world that we will fail, but we did not. This is why I have no other option than to believe that we will win. No other option It will be extremely hard, and this is why we are so angry and we are asking for the help. And this is why we are so annoyed that the help is coming late and not in the amounts that we wanted, because we want to win so hard. But on the other hand, all the facts of the past are telling us that we will give him hell of a good fight, and we are giving them hell of a good fight.
0: I imagine you're not surprised in your people but how proud of them are you
3: extremely proud like cry like crying of being proud uh, can you imagine every single man and woman just standing up and saying no you shall not pass no we we will uh, we will go and we will take our lives we'll put them on the line because we will not let you do it to our country we know that we are small. We know that this is a David versus Goliath situation. And we know that we are fighting against pure evil. Because again, we have seen it. You know, months and a half ago, there were rather political statements like freedom and independence and like figuring out your own future, etc. And right now, these are the things that we are actually dying for actually dying for the opportunity, for the right to figure out how our future would look like. And this is tremendous. And this is this is the this is the truth.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We do appreciate it. Thank
3: you.
0: Kira Rudik, member of Ukraine's parliament. More In Depth is on the way. This is KNX In Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. COVID cases on the rise in Southern California, other parts of the country, too. In Philadelphia, they're worried they're bringing back the city's indoor mask mandates. Hospital numbers are still low here,
1: but there is concern that that could change as cases rise. Dr. Ann Moyne is a professor of epidemiology and public health expert at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So if the cases are going up uh, in many parts of the country, I think it's 20 plus states now, Uh, they are going up a bit now in L.A. County as well. Philadelphia is going back to indoor mask mandates. Why are we waiting?
4: Well, I think that, first of all, thanks for having me here. And uh, this is an important topic. You know, we're not out of the pandemic yet. We are still subject to uh, new surges, to the effect of new variants. And and we're going to see this play out again. Uh, The first question you asked me is, why, if Philadelphia is moving forward to, to start uh, mask mandates again, why are we not doing it? Well, we, we don't have the same rates that Philadelphia has at this point. Uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia started to see uh, an increase in cases. Uh, it met their threshold that they defined for bringing masks back. And so they made that very prudent decision to do so. If we start to see cases increase here in Los Angeles at the same rate, which we may going forward, we may move to to make similar. um, But haven't but haven't we made
1: but haven't we made repeatedly that same mistake throughout this pandemic that we look at what's happening in New York and and then we wait. And then when it gets to a certain point here, when it's usually too late, we go, okay now we need to put our masks back on. Why didn't wouldn't it make more sense to look at the warning signs in a third of the country and figure, well, it's probably going to happen here. So maybe nip it in the bud.
4: Well, of course, Be, it's. Uh, I always say it's easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. But I, I think that you know there there are many things that a uh, Department of Health uh, considers when they are uh, determining when to require masks in public as a mandate. Again, and I I think that there's been a, a big push against uh, masks and and a lot of resistance. So I think that they're they're balancing. The, the needs of the public and the, uh, um, you know, the feasibility of, of being able to to do this. Now, that said, whether or not there's a mandate, there's a lot that everyone can do. If you start to see cases tipping, ticking up uh, nationally, if you start to see cases ticking up locally, it's time to put those masks back on. Uh, many of us have not stopped wearing masks. And so I think it's very important to remember that whether or not there is a mandate, there is a lot that we can all do as individuals to remain safe and very important to remember that the numbers that we're seeing are not necessarily reflective of true positivity rates here in California or in Los Angeles, because we don't have the same kind of testing that was ongoing before the pandemic. And so many people have, move to using at-home tests that are not recorded in the system.
0: Do you think and or hope that at least the uh, transit masking rules get extended past, uh, what, next week, I think is when they're supposed to sunset? But um, people are betting that we're at least going into May for those.
4: Well, I'm crossing my fingers hoping that the, and toes hoping that they'll be able to, to keep that that uh, transportation mandate in place. I think it's really important when you have people in close proximity to each other and uh, coming from from places not only nationally but globally. That uh, that those mask mandates will make a very big difference. Um, and and uh, fingers crossed that that's what's going to happen.
1: To, uh, to go back to your point about home testing, as I'm sure you know, there are some experts who think that the true infection rate around the country is an order of magnitude higher than what we think it is because people are testing at home and they tend not to report it.
4: I agree with that. I think that the 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 true burden of infection here uh and everywhere at this point is hard to 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 really know, but I certainly agree that it is significantly higher than than what is reflective of what the, what the case counts are officially.
0: How much of this, though, still falls into a category of this was going to happen once the rules were lifted. And as long as hospitalizations continue a decline, then cases don't mean as much as they used to because it is Omicron.
4: Well, I, I think that... Ugh. Yes and no. I think that it's it's true that uh, hospitalizations are at the lowest rate that they, they've been since the beginning of the pandemic. And that's great news for now. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to see an increase in cases and that we won't see an increase in hospitalizations. You know, I think it's very important that case counting remains uh, a, a key metric here because it gives you situational awareness, lets you know what's coming down the pike, and as you said at the very beginning of this, allows you to make moves before it's too late. The problem of using hospitalizations as a key metric or, or deaths is that 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 is a lagging indicator. We see hospitalizations rise and deaths rise weeks to months after the the surge has begun, and then you're it's already too too late to prevent a lot of disease, a lot of death. And a reminder to everybody, you know, you say, well, it's just Omicron. Well, you know, many cases are mild. Omicron appears to be a, a much milder form, but because it is so contagious and the new uh, sub-variants are even more contagious than what we saw before, you know, it, it, it's very important to remember that it's easily caught. And it's not just about hospitalizations and deaths. Even mild illnesses are associated with long covid and long COVID can include uh, blood clots, brain disorders, uh, heart problems. There is a whole host of problems that can be associated with that. So it isn't just about the hospitalizations and deaths.
1: It, it must, I would think, as an expert, drive you up a wall when I'm sure you've heard conversations, because I have, uh, of people saying things like, well, it's a good thing we're coming out of the uh, pandemic and oh, it's good that the pandemic is over, even some of our colleagues i have to admit on on television and radio i keep hearing phrases like as we come out of the pandemic but we're not yet coming out of the pandemic are we
4: we are not coming out of the pandemic at this point we we still have a ways to go you know and i think it's really important to remember that we have a lot of very vulnerable people uh, locally nationally and globally we, we only have a, a, you know, 65% of the, the nationally uh, of people vaccinated. We still have many people not vaccinated here in Los Angeles County. Children under the age of five have yet to have been able to have the opportunity to get vaccinated. We have a number of people who are not able to mount an immune response because they are immune compromised. Uh, there are a lot of people that are very vulnerable to, to this virus. And I think under, we, we underestimate it at our own peril it's it's important to to remember that we are still in the midst of a pandemic we may be able to relax a bit at certain points when cases are declining but just because we're at a at a low point right now does not mean that it's going to continue to be low and we should be ready to react appropriately and and i always like to remind people that just because as i said before just because masks aren't mandated doesn't mean that you can't wear one or that you can't take additional precautions you know, you, I, I personally am taking all of the precautions still uh, because I know that cases are going to continue to to increase. And, and people may around you have COVID but may not know it because they're not testing uh, or they um, aren't aware because they are asymptomatically infected.
0: Dr. Anne Ramoyne, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Warner Brothers is getting back solely to the business
1: of entertainment. Now, though, it's already dealing with a controversy over censorship and
0: China. It has to do with the latest Harry Potter movie, uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. Studio cut out six seconds of dialogue that make a clear reference to a romantic relationship between two important male characters. With us now, Jason Squire. Professor Emeritus of the USC School of Cinematic Arts and editor of the movie Business Book. Uh, Jason, thanks for being here. So what do we get from this? A lot of people are saying uh, the price for a uh, race in the Gay Character seems to be the Chinese box office, so uh, here we go.
5: Well, that does seem to be the uh, conclusion. The Chinese government controls all movies that are shown in China. It's an enormous market growing by leaps and bounds. And so the studios do covet the Chinese market. Uh, The Chinese government decides on which movies to allow in their theaters. They are limited uh, to between 30 and 35 non-Chinese language movies. And so it is a very big deal to have approval by the government, which includes going through the censorship uh, process, the approval process. And every now and then, there are English-language movies that are either rejected outright, like uh, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, um, or have censorship issues which studios tend to go with in order to not jeopardize the, uh, the Chinese box
1: office. Okay, so in this case, we're talking about taking out about six seconds important apparently six seconds, but six seconds from the entire film. But uh, isn't there also a danger that in pursuit of of the fortunes, hoped fortunes of box office in China, that entire projects may not get off the ground? Maybe they haven't gotten off the ground because the subject matter is deemed to be one that China would object to, so why make the movie to begin with?
5: That's correct, unfortunately. This has had a chilling effect on content of tentpole movies on the part of Hollywood studios. So, yes, there is a grave concern and an extra uh, checking of content to make sure that nothing will be offensive. It's not the uh, healthiest uh, way of pursuing uh, box office.
0: What about how Warner Brothers is talking about taking out the six seconds and and, write small uh, lines of dialogue, but uh, big meaning behind it. So they're saying uh, it's a nuanced cut, we have to be sensitive to in-market factors, and there's a, a line in there saying it doesn't change the overall big plot of the movie, but then also that's getting the response of, uh, I don't know, if your two main characters used to be in love, and now they're fighting for control of the world, that seems to be like a big thing that should be talked about.
5: Yes, I agree with that. And that's coming from the Western standpoint of um, you know, Hardly any censorship, sure. We have some uh, sensitivities about movie content here, but it's organized by the Motion Picture Association, and that's how ratings were born. But no such thing in exporting an um, English-language movie in China. But yes, it has a chilling effect.
1: So do you have uh, hold out much hope that Hollywood would get much backbone when it comes to this uh, issue? I mean, this is an industry where, you know, many people did give a standing ovation to someone who committed assault on television. So do you have much hope that they'll have the backbone to stop this?
5: I think that ovation on the uh, night of the Oscars is a very good example of the backbone of uh, the Academy and association in general, the, uh, you know, Hollywood movie executive decision-making, especially when dollars are at stake. It gets very dicey, and this is another example of that. I don't know of, a, of the ideal solution, but I'm glad that it's part of the conversation.
1: Uh, let's, uh, since we're, we're talking about a movie that is uh, made, the uh, uh, Harry Potter one, by Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers, of course, is in the news for something uh, other than than uh, kowtowing to China. Uh, it's also in the news because of its merger now with Discovery. So does this change the nature of Warner Brothers coming out of its re- arrangement with AT&T and into a new marriage with Discovery?
5: Yes, absolutely. It's a breath of fresh air. The three years that AT&T controlled uh, Warner Brothers, was a a very, uh, how can I put it diplomatically? It was a negative uh, period that happened to coincide with COVID. And so the great minds at Warner Brothers uh, decided because theaters were closed that all of the 2021 theatrical movies would premiere on HBO Max. It was clearly an effort to boost subscriptions on their new streaming platform, HBO Max, to the detriment of those theaters that were opening slowly over time during 2021. Blanket, 30-day exclusive on HBO Max, no chance in theaters for a whole month. And, of course, the dramatic decline of box office was the result. Now, the crazy part of this, in terms of management judgment and uh, sensibility, is that they forgot to tell the talent or the representatives of the talent about this decision until like the day before. Um, so these managers were really not ready for the movie business, and they form a long line of companies outside the industry who really felt that they could manage an entertainment property like a studio, but didn't last very long. The history from the 1960s, is filled with examples. Now, should I give my favorite?
0: Sure, yes.
5: Okay, how's this? Universal, the really excellent executives at Universal uh, in the 1990s. Uh, Mitsushida bought MCA Universal in 1990. And then the Japanese company sold it to Seagram, the British distillery, in 1995, who sold it to Vivendi, the French waterworks, in <laughs> 2000. And then to General Electric's NBC in 2003, acquired by Comcast in 2011, finally has a stable (laughs) entertainment base. Now, during the time, I mean, I I know executives who went through all of these changeovers. It was a very, very unhappy time. And this latest example of um, AT&T's thinking that they could run a movie studio is uh, another example of how
1: not as easy as it looks. Well, (laughs) imagine in America a company that doesn't know how to do its own business.
0: Jason Squire, Professor Emeritus, USC School of Cinematic Arts. He's got the uh, movie business book. More to come. This is KNX In Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The war in Ukraine has had such a devastating impact on the country. We've talked to a lot of people who are there. Their lives completely changed, uh, many of them permanently.
1: Yeah, and in fact, we just uh, got off uh, an interview with uh, one of the members of parliament right. in, in Kiev, a very interesting uh, woman. Fortunately for the people of Ukraine, many aid groups have stepped up to help in many different ways. Two U.S. Army veterans turned filmmakers headed to Ukraine tomorrow to document those efforts. With us now, we have uh, Hank Barb and hopefully soon uh, Justin Roberts. Uh, they are both with Echo Bravo Productions. Uh, Justin Roberts, the CEO of that company. Uh, Hank, so tell us about why the decision to go and what you hope to accomplish in Ukraine.
6: Well, hey, thanks for having me on, too. Uh, Justin should be here in a second. He's in a uh, uh, budget meeting. Uh you know, Justin and I have a show called Do Good, and we go and we we went to uh, Hurricane Laura in 2020, and uh, we saw the destruction there, and we saw the people come together, and we were able to find a way to tell their stories, and, and, it, and it helped bring eyes on them, and it helped bring resources to them. Uh, so now we have an opportunity to go to, you know, Ukraine, which the whole place is decimated, and when things like that happen, heroes always rise up. You know, we're not looking for war heroes. We're looking for heroes for the people, people that are feeding people and helping people get out and things like that.
0: How inspired are you by what you have seen so far, just in the coverage of, of how many people have gone to help and some of them picking up everything here from their businesses and just and say, you know what, I'm going to get to Poland. I'm going to get as close as I can get.
6: And it, it's great. You know, some of the some of the groups that, that we got to work with when we were in Lake Charles after the hurricane, I looked and they're in the Ukraine. Uh, there's a group called aerial recovery and it's made up of, you know, former SF guys and, 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 you know, they've got resources. And if you look, they're pulling out 89 orphans at a time, just evacuating them because there's really no place safe to be there right now.
1: You're going uh, as I understand it to uh, at least in part to the Eastern portion of Ukraine. Is that right?
6: Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, uh we're filmmakers and, and our goal is to make a film that tells the actual story of what's going on.
1: But that is a very dangerous but that's a very dangerous part of, of the country. What's your own personal concern? Well,
6: obviously, you know, there's there's a touch of fear there, you know, but you know, we think about the fact that there's people's grandmothers that are there. You know, uh it's if if we have to tell the story. And we have to tell it right. And that means that that we've got to see what's actually happening. Uh, But both of us are combat vets. Justin was in uh, in 327, no slack during uh, Afghanistan. I was a flight medic during uh, during Iraq, you know, so we kind of have an idea of things to do not to get ourselves killed. You
0: know, when you see what you see and, and when you will see what you're going to see when you go into this Eastern area of the country, how does that get reconciled in your mind? How does it sit with you? Cause it's horrible to witness it. But like you said earlier, I think you're going to find heroes that are doing what they can to help.
1: And, and
6: you know, that's the thing, you know,
0: uh,
6: uh neither of us are voyeurs. We don't want to go there just to watch what's happening. You know, the whole goal of film for us is hope, you know, we- we're going to be there and we're going to see the destruction, but we're also going to see people coming together, you know, neighbors feeding neighbors. And it, that part of the whole, the whole thing is, is amazing and really inspiring, you know, and, and part of the thing that we're able to do is we're able to funnel resources uh, to the people that we feature through, uh, we have a deal with uh, United way that helps us pay several nonprofits. Right. Uh, so not only are we going to get to, be inspired but we're going to get to provide resources to those folks uh that they might not get without it you know
0: hank barb uh echo bravo productions headed out to ukraine tomorrow hank uh, we wish you good luck and, and, and thank you for talking to us
1: okay how would you describe yourself are you uh outgoing extroverted or are you the neurotic type nervous and worried and your study finds certain personality traits may be a key factor in whether people develop mild cognitive impairment as they get older.
0: Yeah, this study looked at a couple of things, conscientiousness and neuroticism. And with us here to break things down is April Thames, uh, Thames a professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences at the UCLA Brain Research Institute. Uh, April, thank you for being here. So. Take those two terms for us and let's uh, do a quick uh, definition and then what it meant for people who kind of fell into those groups.
7: Sure. Um, Thank you for having me, first of all. So in these studies, they they really looked at two sort of a, a bunch of different personality traits, but there were two that sort of rose as being predictive, if you will, or linked to those who are more likely to go on to develop dementia. So the first, um, we call it neuroticism. That refers to how well somebody is able to handle stress. So people who score high on the neuroticism scale, they tend to worry, think the worst about things, have less effective coping skills. Whereas those who were um, and those who scored high on that scale, they were more likely to show later on in life that they went on to develop mild cognitive impairment or dementia. Um, the other personality trait um, that was interesting, it showed that it was less associated with going on to develop dementia, and that was conscientiousness, which is how much does a person sort of follow rules, how, you know, how thoughtful are they and what they're doing on their day to day. And we have to think about these results, you know, all together because we're talking about these two personality traits. But these personality traits are often correlated with lots of other things that are important um, in one's likelihood to go on and develop cognitive impairment.
1: So if I understand correctly, if you're conscientious, then according to the studies, that's good. But if you worry about how conscientious
0: you are, then it's bad.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's great. Good job. Exactly.
0: <laughs> that was nice. A- and um, this is like the accumulation of the lifelong experiences, right? Is that kind of how this would happen? It's, it's, you know, 80 years of thinking a certain way. Eventually that kind of builds you up to, to a certain point.
7: Right. And, and we have to think about, because when I first saw this, I thought, Oh no, I guess I'm, <laughs> I thought it's I'm, all over I'm, for I'm, me. A little yeah. neurotic. <laughs> so I thought, Oh no, but um, you know, we have to think about, you know, it's really hard to separate personality from, intellectual ability or cognitive capacity and we know from many studies that the sort of more cognitive capacity someone has the less likely they are to show decline in later age so as we think about these personality traits someone who might score high on neuroticism might do so because they don't necessarily have the you know the right coping skills or the cognitive capacity to be able to think outside the box and problem solve whereas someone who's more open or conscientious, they might, you know, they might have a more creative way about thinking about their problems. So it, it, it is very hard to separate out cognitive ability and personality, although we measure those two things very differently.
1: Do the studies indicate whether there's anything anyone can do about all this?
7: Yes. And in fact, I'd I'd like to point out, you know, a very interesting study that's ongoing by the Alzheimer's Association and it's called the U.S. Pointer Study. And this is focusing on lifestyle interventions such as diet, sleep, exercise, you know, and and to look at how do these factors, if one engages in these throughout the life course, how does that have uh, an impact on cognitive, you know, outcomes later on? And we do know that, you know, eating right, exercise, getting enough sleep, all of those factors contribute to one's brain health. So if people are engaged in sort of maintaining both, you know, cognitively active but also doing these other physical activities, they tend to show better outcomes later in life. That's why it's so important to, to be able to catch cognitive impairment early on because these are things that can be implemented at any stage in life
0: the older we get we all start to to lose it a little bit uh in certain areas how much longer does doing things all the the, all the right way how much longer does it buy you
7: that's a good question, and if I had that answer, that is the sixty-four million dollar question, right? So I don't know exactly how many years, on you know offhand, but we do know that, for example, in studies that show people who have been sort of regularly engaged in cognitive activities throughout their life course, when they reach the age where most people might start to show impairment. So around age 70, it takes them about an additional five to 10 years, maybe even more to show the same degree as somebody who might be 10 years younger if they they haven't had. So I, I would say it might buy you about a decade, but that would be completely my guess is based on these studies looking at cognitive you know stimulating activities over the course of lifespan
1: so what are the odds that in a few years there will be another study that'll say the exact opposite
7: i don't think there will be a oh about the personality there yeah. yeah that that's a good question because you know keep in mind that Just each of us, we're not just um, high on one scale. You know, for the most part, if we take these personality tests, we might be high on a few different scales. So the combinations of personality, you know, might matter as as opposed to just one scale in isolation. So if somebody's high on neuroticism, but they're also high on, say, openness, that might be somewhat protective. I don't. I'm not sure. I'm just completely making it up but it is possible that we might hear later down the line that oh you know it's, it's not just these scales but maybe there's a combination of the certain personality traits that seem to be protective because they are going to drive the behaviors that people are likely to engage in or not
0: we'll call you back when it happens april thames a professor of psychiatry bio behavioral sciences ucla brain research institute that's in depth for today back tomorrow